Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with Russia in Revolution. We're continuing a chapter about the Bolsheviks in power and how they're dealing with differences of opinion and dissenting voices. So let's get started. One Party Dictatorship in Action The outbreak of civil war made it imperative to reverse the extreme decentralization of power that had taken place in the first six months of 1918. According to the 1918 constitution, the Soviet Central Executive Committee was the supreme legislative, administrative, and controlling organ of the RSFSR. Yet, during its first year, it ratified only 68 of the 480 decrees passed by the Council of People's Commissars. After the Mensheviks and SRs were expelled in June 1918, the CEC lost its role as a form in which the opposition could make its voice heard, and during 1919 it barely met. Soon, a new Council of Workers and Peasants' Defense came to overshadow the CEC. Its founding decree of the 30th of November 1918, stating that its task was to coordinate the work of the economic agencies with the needs of defense. Lenin was its chairman, and it was this body that allowed him to put his ample organizational talents at the service of the war effort. Within the core area that remained under Bolshevik control, Soviets, whose leading personnel were now appointed rather than elected, continued to be the bodies responsible for implementing the policies of the central ministries and higher party bodies. In the huge swath of territory recaptured from the whites, or in areas close to the front, However, revolutionary committees, rather than Soviets, became the supreme authority in military and civilian matters. These were emergency organs, established on an ad hoc basis, at provincial, county, or local level, usually by the political departments of the Red Army, tasked with guaranteeing order and ensuring that the Red Army was properly supplied. The aim of the revolutionary committees was ultimately to re-establish politically reliable Soviets. By 1920, there were some 500 revolutionary committees in the Don and Turek Cossack regions alone, and about 700 in the Kuban Black Sea region. Footnote 77. Once victory hove into view, the committees should have been wound up, but they substituted for Soviets after the Caucasus was recaptured, and they continued to exist into the mid-1920s in parts of Siberia, the Far East, and Central Asia. Although the trend was towards centralization of power in the hands of the party oligarchy, the command administrative system junctioned more like a loose set of rival and overlapping jurisdictions than a centralized bureaucratic hierarchy. At provincial level, party organizations struggled to impose control over Soviet authorities, and both in turn fought off intrusion by the provincial Cheka or provincial organs of the economic and food commissariats. In localities closer to the front, revolutionary committees might clash with local party organs, and both might clash with food detachments or with special emissaries sent by the center to finesse particular problems. In the absence of a clear division of authority, the system relied for cohesion on powerful individuals. 
third-party officials thus developed networks of clients to consolidate their control and fend off outside interference. While the centre disapproved of influential power blocks, as its decision to disband the Central Committee of the Ukrainian Communist Party in April 1920 showed, in practice it knew that letting local bosses amass power was the only way to get things done. With remarkable speed, a new word, Kamstvanstvo, or communist arrogance, appeared, which described the airs adopted by these new bosses. Poorly educated and inexperienced, they made up for their inadequacies by throwing their weight around, by being rude to subordinates, and by parading their proletarian credentials. Their style of leadership was heavily influenced by army life, their hallmark being a peremptory command, underscored by the brandishing of a mauser. The quality of those who represented the public face of the Soviets in the localities, particularly in the countryside, was often dismal. In 1919 and 1920, the Commissariat of State Control received tens of thousands of complaints about abuses and corruption by Soviet officials. Checker reports were frank about the scale of bribery, speculation, embezzlement, drunkenness, and sabotage. A report from the Penza Provincial Cheka in summer 1920 was typical. Quote, in the countryside, we must quench the appetites of those commissars who, on going into the village, consider it their sacred duty to get blind drunk and then take other pleasures, such as raping women, shooting, and so forth. Crimes such as bribery and illegal requisitions of anything they fancy flourish everywhere in the counties, and when repression is applied, it does little to help. End quote. Footnote 78. Meanwhile, the number of those employed in Soviet institutions spiraled. In 1917, about one million people were working in state institutions, but by 1921 this had risen to 2.5 million. In 1913, officials comprised 6.4% of the working population of the Russian Empire. In 1920, 13.5%. Already in 1922, the number of white-collar employees working for the Supreme Council of National Economy was 1.2 million, compared with 6,000 in autumn 1918. Footnote 79. As early as June 1918, the Cheka in Perm district in the Urals reported, quote, Robbery quickly established a nest for itself in the organizations that is difficult to root out. As the gentlemen of fortune who, on seeing the shortage of personnel in the first days of the revolution, declared themselves fervent supporter of socialist power and took up positions in the offices and departments. Theft, embezzlement, waste and sabotage have become an almost daily phenomenon and the struggle against them absorbs much strength and energy of the young Cheka. End quote. Footnote 80. Few among the army of typists, filing clerks, cashiers, accountants, storekeepers, and drivers felt much sympathy towards the new rulers. They worked in order to get a food ration. Most had a low level of education, were inefficient, reluctant to take initiative, and imbued with an ethos of red tape and routinism. The Bolshevik Party, which renamed itself the All-Russian Communist Party, Parentheses, Bolshevik, Parentheses, 
RKP, parentheses, B, close both parentheses. In 1918, was rapidly transformed from a subversive organization into a governing party concerned to build a functioning state. Footnote 81. The Central Committee of the party was no longer just responsible for party affairs, but also had a remit to determine the broad direction of policy of the Council of People's Commissars, the individual commissariats, and other organs of government. By 1921, the Central Committee had doubled in size to cope with an ever-growing volume of business. Since its meetings were relatively infrequent, a Politburo of five was established in 1919 to deal with urgent matters. This met at least once a week and quickly became the party's most powerful decision-making body. The sudden death from influenza in March 1919 of Sverdlov, a man of indefatigable energy who had served as a secretary to the Central Committee, but who relied mainly on a phenomenal memory, accelerated the effort to improve record-keeping. The Secretariat grew from 6 to over 600 officials by 1921, but still could not meet the needs of registering and assigning new recruits, and of sending activists to the different fronts so long as the war lasted. It was partly its inefficiency that caused Lenin to put Stalin in charge in April 1922. Footnote 82. The Central Committee was dominated by an oligarchy consisting of Lenin, Trotsky, Kamenev, Zinoviev, Stalin, and Bukharin. But there was never any doubt that Lenin was first among equals. He enjoyed towering moral authority, and it was his extraordinary talent as a political leader, in particular his ability to balance intransigence with compromise, that held the oligarchy together. The Central Committee generally, but not invariably, followed Lenin's direction. In August 1921, for example, he was unable to engineer the expulsion from it of Alexander Shlepnikov, the leader of the workers' opposition. There were no deep factional divisions in the Central Committee, but there was a loose group that resented Trotsky's talent and influence. The sovereign policy-making body continued to be the Party of Congress, of which four took place during the period 1917 to 1921 and the degree of political conflict evident at the Congresses was tense. Factions such as the Democratic Centralists invade against the dictatorship of party officialdom, hoping to reconcile the centralization of authority with rank-and-file participation in the party and Soviets. For their part, the workers' opposition campaigned for the trade unions to run industry. None of this prevented the range of permitted dissent from gradually narrowing. By the end of the Civil War, it was inconceivable that a Bolshevik should argue, as had been perfectly permissible in October 1917, that other socialist parties should be represented in the Soviets, or that freedom of the press should extend to bourgeois publications. In March 1921, against the background of the Kronstadt Rebellion, discussed in Chapter 5, the 10th Party Congress banned factions as a temporary measure, but it was never revoked. Between the 8th Congress, March 1919, and the 10th, the party grew from 313,000 to 730,000. 
This was still tiny in relation to the population, and in 1920, the majority of the 10,000 townships in European Russia had no party organization. Worker members comprised 41% of the membership, as opposed to 60% in 1917. But most of these were workers by social origin who no longer worked on the factory floor, having been promoted to positions in the state administration, economic organs, or the Red Army. The rest of the membership was more or less equally divided between peasants, mostly soldiers, and white-collar employees, most of whom worked in the state apparatuses. On the eve of the 10th Party Congress, L.B. Krasen declared... Quote, the source of the woes and unpleasantness that we are currently experiencing is the fact that the Communist Party consists of 10% convinced idealists who are ready to die for the idea, and 90% hangers-on without consciences who have joined the party in order to get a position. End quote. Footnote 83. Krasin articulated a growing sense that the party had been hijacked by careerists, and if the purge of 1921 is any guide, he was right. For no fewer than 24% of the 732,000 party members were excluded for idleness, lack of firmness, unreliability, discrediting Soviet power, self-seeking, careerism, drunkenness, a bourgeois lifestyle, and a dissolute way of life. Footnote 84. Not surprisingly, many rank-and-file party members began vociferously to attack the privileges enjoyed by those at the top. In June 1920, Preobrazensky reported to the Central Committee that the majority of rank-and-file members supported slogans such as, quote, down with the privileged caste of the communist elite. End quote. Footnote 85. What these privileges might entail can be seen from the diary entry for the 24th of October 1919 of the writer Kornei Chukovsky. Quote, Yesterday I was at Gorky's on Kronversky. Zinoviev was there. At the entrance I was amazed to see a magnificent car, on the seat of which was carelessly thrown a bearskin. Zinoviev, short and fat, spoke in a hoarse and satiated voice. End quote. Footnote 86. In reality, most of the party oligarchy were men of Spartan habits, but the fact that Kremlin staff were eligible for armored rations caused disgust at a time when tens of thousands were starving. At the Ninth Party Conference in September 1920, Zinoviev admitted that the gap between the Nizi, those at the bottom, and the Verki, those at the top, was the most acute issue within the party, and a commission was set up to investigate Kremlin privileges. Its recommendations were never implemented. Footnote 87. By 1920-21, there was a severe crisis of morale inside the Communist Party. A discourse about bureaucracy had become influential in the party, which fused exasperation at red tape and careerism with disaffection at the arbitrary transfer of cadres and the substitution of political departments, such as Trotsky had created in the Red Army for party committees. At a deeper level, it expressed dissatisfaction with authoritarianism and the suppression of democracy. 
everyone could agree that bureaucracy was a bad thing, and party members tended to concur that it sprang from the entry of class aliens into the Soviet and party administration, a diagnosis that conveniently relieved party leaders of responsibility for the pathology. Both leadership and left oppositionists, moreover, agreed that one solution to bureaucracy lay in workerization, that is, the promotion of workers to positions of responsibility. Yet it was clear that proletarians promoted into positions of authority often behaved little differently from those officials who had moved seamlessly from positions in Tsarist ministries or zemstvos into commissariats or Soviets. It was, however, the calls from the opposition factions for a restoration of internal party democracy that most rattled the leadership. When the former house painter, Timofey Sapronov, leader of the Democratic Centralists, called for greater accountability of the Central Committee at the Ninth Party Congress, Lenin retorted, quote, Soviet socialist democracy is not incompatible with one-person management or a dictatorship. A dictator can sometimes express the will of a class, since he will sometimes achieve more alone and thus be more necessary. End quote. Lenin never revoked that position, even when he became tormented by the problem of bureaucracy towards the end of his life. In his view, probably realistic in the conditions that prevailed, centralized dictatorship was vital if the revolution was to be safeguarded. The most that could be allowed was for the masses to monitor those who governed on their behalf. Measures to combat the many different issues that were condensed into the word bureaucracy therefore proved feeble. The most significant were the creation of a workers' and peasants' inspectorate, Rabkrin, to check on the activities of government organs and of a central control commission to monitor the activities of the party. These two bodies may have added to the problem they were intended to solve, since each organ quickly acquired its own staff and generated vast quantities of paperwork. What no one could admit was that the principal causes of bureaucracy lay in the massive expansion of the state itself and in the absence of a culture of rational and impersonal authority and legal regulation. Neither could the discourse of bureaucracy allow any discussion of the moral degeneration that the civil war had engendered within the party, particularly the ingrained assumption that any measure, however repulsive, could be justified if it could be said to preserve the workers' state. To her surprise, Angelica Balabanov, the Russian-Jewish-Italian revolutionary, was appointed to secretary of the Third International, see chapter 6, in 1919. Yet she proved too free a spirit and began to criticize the, quote, partisan, factional, dogmatic, authoritarian, manipulative, organizational, end quote, approach of Lenin and Zinoviev, footnote 88. In Tsarist Times, she noted, quote, the actions of those who, to attain the desired end, resorted to objectionable means were regarded as purified by the sacrifices they endured. But when, with the ascension of the Bolsheviks, the same principle was applied by people who acted not in the interests of an idealistic end, but in their own interest, the debacle began, dragging with it 
the destruction of principles, scruples, inhibitions, idealism and ideals, if the head of the government declares, as Lenin did many times in his speeches and writings, that to penetrate reactionary trade unions, the communists must, if necessary, distort the truth and resort to subterfuge, cunning and mental reservations, and if Lenin, speaking as a Bolshevik leader, said one time that in order to finish a group of dissidents, slander was acceptable, one should not wonder that people within and outside the party later used the same methods to reach their own ends. End quote. Footnote 89. But it was Karl Kotsky, the leader of the German Social Democrats and the arch-renegade in Bolshevik eyes, who most cogently set out the case that the means used to achieve an end can easily distort and undermine it. In his book, Terrorism and Communism, written in June 1919, he argued, quote, The Bolsheviks are prepared, in order to maintain their position, to make all sorts of possible concessions to bureaucracy, to militarism, and to capitalism, whereas any concession to democracy seems to them to be sheer suicide. End quote. Footnote 90. This provoked a furious response from Trotsky in May 1920 in a pamphlet that bore the same title as Kotsky's. Quote, Who aims at the end cannot reject the means. The struggle must be carried on with such intensity as actually to guarantee the supremacy of the proletariat. If the socialist revolution requires a dictatorship, it follows that the dictatorship must be guaranteed at all cost. It is only possible to safeguard the supremacy of the working class by forcing the bourgeoisie to realize that it is too dangerous an undertaking for it to revolt against the dictatorship of the proletariat, to undermine it by conspiracies, sabotage, insurrections, or the calling in of foreign troops. The man who repudiates terrorism in principle, i.e. repudiates measures of suppression and intimidation towards determined and armed counter-revolution, must reject all idea of the political supremacy of the working class and its revolutionary dictatorship. End quote. Footnote 91. Trotsky was, of course, correct scornfully to point out that it was easier to write tearful pamphlets than to win a civil war. But the fury of his response suggests that Kotsky's critique had touched a raw nerve. In October 1917, when the former Turner Alexander Schottmann ventured to doubt whether even a cook or housekeeper could administer the state, Lenin retorted, rubbish, any worker will master any ministry within a few days. In 1921, however, an exasperated Lenin Ox postulated, does every worker really know how to run the state? Practical people know that this is a fairy story. Who of the workers can rule? Only several thousand, no more, throughout the whole of Russia. End quote. Footnote 92. The Bolsheviks had eliminated private property in the means of production with astounding ease, but a byproduct of that was the collapse of the working class. Absent the force that was supposed to make socialism, Lenin came to believe that the state had become the guarantor of progress towards it, and that any strengthening of the state broadly equated to the strengthening of the proletariat. He had no inkling that the state itself could become an instrument of exploitation, and showed little understanding of how the Bolsheviks could themselves be captured by the apparatus which they notionally controlled. 
and that is going to do it for this week as we have finished up this chapter. In this particular chapter, I was glad to have read The Conquest of Bread because I think having the critiques of authoritarianism and the principles of anarchy were very useful for thinking about where things may be going wrong in this chapter, where there may be missteps made, and how, despite best intentions, there may be ways in which a communist regime can be oppressive, despite attempts to mold society to a better one, and that it doesn't require someone be a non-believer or faking for those to still happen. I find myself at times vaguely skeptical of the author of this particular book in that, again, I don't actually know the details of what's about to come, but the author of this book doesn't seem to treat Lenin too kindly. At times this book offers certain critiques of communists or communism or the Bolsheviks or Lenin particularly, and will catch those critiques with, to be fair, it is maybe reasonable to be paranoid when you're being attacked on all sides, but it still feels like at times you get the sense that the author does particularly specifically disagree with choices Lenin made. And I'm not going to try and claim that Lenin made all the right choices, but I just think that's worth having as a thought while reading this book. There was a particular line that referred to uh, members of the public taking property as being greedy. That read very weird to me, because the idea that, as far as I could tell, it was the author's own words describing them as greedy seemed to be oddly emotive for something that, A, is kind of a central premise of this entire revolution, that these people should just have access to land to farm and not have to worry about landlords who arbitrarily own it. And yet, that tiny little slip, it was a single word, and yet it felt a little bit revealing about not fully having sympathy with the people here. Because I think there are worthwhile critiques to make of the changes and movements being made here, Again, I have not finished the book, and I truly know very little about what is else is about to happen here, so I will not be too critical or too harsh, but it is certainly something I'm going to keep thinking about as we continue with this book. The other reason I'm glad I've read The Conquest of Bread is... It was a funny joke that un the author said, unsurprisingly, the anarchists were not very organized. And that is certainly what I think about in this situation where even though I'm looking at what the Bolsheviks are doing and seeing mistakes of authoritarian tendencies maybe guiding them into incorrect paths, I do not have a clue what I would do in this situation, and I don't think less organization is the answer is unfortunately the problem. which. Obviously, is not the whole point of anarchism. After having read The Conquest of Bread, I understand it more as being about analyzing authoritarian relationships and having organization and having cooperation and coordination without hierarchy existing. But also, this whole situation is a mess to do with being a huge sprawling country that is massively decentralized, and how do you 
How do you centrally control a movement to ensure that it is not being undone by the 12 different fronts that are trying to undo what you're doing? The, the sub-chapter on nationalism in particular was really good for this because it showed how even wanting to just give autonomy to individual countries is difficult because it is so easily set up to give power to people. And those people might not be doing good things with it. Those people might be funded by enemies. Those people might just sincerely have shitty beliefs. They might end up just making things worse for the people of that country, even if that means self-determination. Just being in control of your own country does not necessarily mean you do good things. And that's not to say that the best thing would always be for the, some other far-off place to be deciding things for that whole country, but you, there's a clear push and pull of very concrete examples of things going poorly because they were not being controlled by a particular communist push, and instead having much more bourgeois interests able to take over or push things in a way even if they didn't fully take over. Uh, but that's all I'm going to say on it for now. I'm looking forward to getting further through this book. We're not even halfway through it yet, so it's, it's going to be quite a long run of it. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can go to soundimage.org to find lots of his work there. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading. <laughs>